Hey, we want to thank all of our kids ministry volunteers and workers and pastors who serve every week. You know, we really believe that kids ministry uh, is one of the best investments that we can make spiritually in the next generation. And uh, it is an active service for so many volunteers and workers and leaders to serve of themselves selflessly week after week. I know that all of your children are little angels and none of them would ever be difficult to manage during a service, but um, Lucifer was a little, little angel as well. So uh, anyways, we just want to say thanks to, to all of our, 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 our kids ministry workers and, and all of the ways in which they're helping and working and, and uh, serving. As the church has grown, uh, the pursuit has run into a number of good problems to have. And one of those problems is that we just really need more help in kids' ministry than ever before. And in the foyer today, uh, there's going to be a table set up for, for those of you who might be interested in serving in kids' ministry. We could really use your help. As many of you know, we're going to a third service here in January, January 3rd. It'll be the first Sunday of the new year. And we're starting it off with launching a third service, meaning our service times are adjusting. They're going from 9 uh, and then at 10.30 will be the second service and then at noon will be the third service. Now, some of you already come to about the 11.45 service, and so for you, just wait another 15, come to the noon, and be on time. Uh, for, for others of you, you come to, come to the 10.30, and you will be okay, and, and others of you might join us earlier at, at 9 a.m., but, but however you so desire to plug in, we're going to encourage you to help be a part of building and bringing uh, and inviting. One of the most powerful things that we can do as a church community is develop an invitational culture. Uh, by which we're excited to tell people about what God is doing here in the Northwest. I believe every believer uh, needs a church home, a church family, and uh, as long as there are people without a church family to call home, the pursuit has a reason to grow. And so uh, we want to invite the Northwest out to see what God is doing in this place. If you couldn't tell already, we take ourselves not too seriously, but we take the presence of God really seriously, and we hope that this is a place where your family can come, plug in, come to life, and feel like it's a real easy place uh, for you to thrive and uh, for you to develop. God is doing some really incredible things, and uh, we are excited. Obviously, as many of you know, we're doing something new this year that we haven't done before, which is host our candlelight service on Christmas Eve. And so 4 p.m., 6 p.m., and 8 p.m., we'll be doing free candlelight service. Hope you can make it out. Invite a friend. Uh, we're going to have all sorts of animals and games and fun and food, and, and it's just going to be an incredible night. You don't want to miss it. We also have a special gift for the first 500 guests at the candlelight services. And so, anyways, invite a family member, and uh, let's celebrate Christmas Eve candlelight together. Uh, that's going to be uh, incredible. Uh, this morning, uh, I'm going to share with you a little bit uh, on the Christmas story out of the book of Matthew, and uh, starting in chapter 1. Before I do, i got to make uh, an apology. I complimented somebody this morning on their ugly Christmas sweater, only to find out it was their regular Christmas sweater. And so... Um, <laughs> Anyways, I know we're just growing the church through insulting people here <laughs> on Sunday morning. I know it wasn't an ugly Christmas sweater to you, but it was to me. Uh, but anyways, it was a little bit of a misplaced compliment there. So, uh, yeah, I think people have been on lockdown too much. You know, people have been in their PJs, wearing their Crocs, not doing their hair. And, uh, <laughs> and sometimes church is about the only time they ever come out of the house. And so uh, uh, figuring out some of those clothing options, that's helpful for us here. <laughs> On, uh, on Sunday morning, but uh, God, God certainly is doing some incredible things. I, I saw uh, an infomercial the other day for, uh, uh, for a, a company called 23andMe, 
And it's this company by which you can send in a, a DNA sample and they'll send you back a full printout, readout of exactly where you came from, where your ancestors came from, your ethnicity, your heritage, your nation of origin, all sorts of things. They give you information that you didn't even want to know about where you came from and what percentage of what nationality you are. And I was thinking about that in the context of today's sermon because I'm going to share with you a story about the genealogy or the heritage or the family tree of Jesus. If you've ever read the New Testament, you know that the first three books of the Bible tell essentially the same story in essentially the same order. And if you're anything like me, you probably ask the question, why do the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us the same story three different times? And the reason for that is because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written all by different people with different audiences in mind. See, Matthew was a tax collector, a Jew, who was converted into the followership of Christ Jesus. And so as he writes the book of Matthew, he's writing to an audience to convince them that Jesus, in fact, is the Jewish Messiah. Whereas when you read the book of Luke, Luke is written by a, a, a Greek physician. And he's writing to a pagan audience, a Greco-Roman audience. And he's explaining to them the deity of Christ and how Christ is the highest God, the highest authority, the highest figure of praise throughout all the known world. They're telling the same story, but they're communicating it to, to two different audiences. And so it helps us understand why different books begin the way that they do. And if you've ever read the Bible all the way straight through, uh, if you were to be honest this morning, there's probably some passages of scripture, some books, some chapters that you just hit the fast forward button on because maybe they weren't really interesting or you didn't really understand what it was trying to communicate. I've been there, I've done it, and I've done it a hundred times for Matthew 1. It's just a long list of people's names. I don't understand it all. I don't know how to pronounce half of them. And so generally in my Bible reading plan, I, I hit the fast forward button, but not this year. And this year, I felt like the Holy Spirit reminded me that every word in Scripture is placed there on purpose by Him to reveal to us something about the character of God and the nature of man. And so as I went back to Matthew 1, I pulled out of that story some things that I think of our applicable interest to our lives today, and I want to share that with you this morning. Starting in Matthew 1 and in verse 1, the Bible says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus. He's the son of David, he's the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. If we fast forward to verse 17, this is kind of how this portion of scripture culminates. It says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and another 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. If we were to read this entire genealogy today, you would see names like this, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, ones that you recognize and, and maybe some that you don't, Judah, Perez, Hezron, Ram, Abinadab, Nashon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David, Solomon, Abijah, Asad, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Josiah, and so many others. It was important for Matthew to tell this story and in this way because it was central to his purpose for this book. In order for Jesus to be who he said he was, he would have needed to fulfill over 400 unique individuals.
individual prophecies in the Old Testament. There were prophecies about his place of birth. There were prophecies about his line of work. There were prophecies about him being born to the tribe of Judah, of a virgin named Mary. There were prophecies that governed the way in which he was raised, the place in which he would die, the method by which he would be executed, the amount of time that it would take for him to raise from the dead. There were over 400 prophecies that tell us that this Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah and is the Son of God. It's not random chance that this is the Jesus that we worship. It wasn't some fable or mythology or just world religion or or philosophical sort of kind of amalgamated worldview. And and we kind of worship Jesus or revere him as a great teacher or otherwise a wise prophet. No, Jesus, in fact, is the Son of God. And the Old Testament looked forward to this moment in time in which the culmination of history would rest on the birth of a baby boy that would shape and split time itself. In fact, even in the way that we understand world history, it's before Christ or it's A.D., after death. When we look at this Jesus in Scripture, I want you to think about genealogy the way that you would think about a concert or a symphony where every note is telling a story. Until it finally reaches its crescendo. The one we have been waiting for is here. And his name is Jesus. It's like all of creation has been waiting to catch its breath. It's like all of humanity has been wondering where this story is going to wind up. The entire family line of history will reach its apex in this one statement. Unto you a savior is born. Because of his audience, Matthew wants to make this point. Not only is he Christ, the anointed son of David, not only is he Jesus, the one who will save people from their sins, but in fact, he is Emmanuel, God with us. And hidden in the genealogy of Christ is the story of four particular women. And I want to draw your attention to these four women this morning. Because I think it reveals to us something about the nature and the character of God. And here's my simple thesis for you on this Sunday. God has placed you in his family line and that changes everything. Friend, that's the message of Christmas. It's not chaos, it's not presents, it's not carols, it's not songs. It's family. God has placed you in his family. And that changes everything. When you get adopted into the family of God, you are translated out of darkness into light. The claim of death against your life is broken and the handwriting of requirements is wiped away. The chains of bondage and iniquity and sin lose their power to hold you. No longer is the grave your biggest fear, for there is no fear in death because Christ himself has bankrupted the grave. When you get translated into the family of Jesus, it is not simply adding some sort of esoteric teaching on love to your already busy worldview. It is the fact that you have been baptized in blood and raised as a new creation. Your life is no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. This is what it means to celebrate Christmas. And this Jesus is with us. He's not just for us. He's not just in us. He's not just around us. He's not just above us. This Jesus is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? 
this God who so desperately wanted to restore the relational connection that was broken in the garden pays the highest price by sending his one and only son. And now through the veil of his torn flesh, you and I enter into right relationship with the Father. And our spirits cried out for adoption, so God responded with his son. And when you're adopted, it changes everything. It changes your name, it changes your culture, it changes your family, it changes the generations that will come from you. It changes everything. When you get adopted into the family of God, it's like a rock that's thrown into a pond and its ripple effects go further than you could ever imagine. Friend, when you get born again into the family of God, it doesn't just change your past, it changes your future. I think sometimes people think about relationship with God like, I'm glad I offloaded all that sin. I'm glad I can have a fresh start, and certainly that's part of the gospel message. But it didn't just forgive my past. It didn't just empower my present. It secured my future. And that's why today, friend, you can have hope, not because you know what tomorrow holds, but because the one who holds tomorrow sits on the throne of your heart. This is the message of Christmas. It's not a safe little baby that stayed in a manger, and how cute, so let's talk about Jesus. No, he is the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah who is jealous for his people. He will not take second place. He will not be set aside. He will not be put in a corner. He will not be ignored. He calls every man, woman, and child into the valley of decision by which this day they will choose. Serve God or serve other idols. This Jesus that we serve has been so safe and sanitized by culture around us. Jesus can only ever be looked upon in a historical fashion, like a piece of art hung in a museum for people to observe, not alive, not dynamic. This Jesus has been so weakened by culture that he'll affirm anything that you do and anything that you like, because how dare this God call us to a higher standard. But this is not the Jesus of Scripture. This is the Jesus who walks through every generation, righting wrongs, balancing the scales of your life, not just forgiving your past, but empowering you to walk in holiness. This Jesus is a jealous God, and he is coming. Coming for the worship of his people. Not just a safe little, quiet little, emaciated little Jesus. He is not a frail man on a throne who is easily upset. Come on, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the reason why we planted this church is because I hear his footsteps in the northwest. Come on, he's coming for a victorious bride. He's coming for an awakened people. And that's why the message of the New Testament apostles is awaken. Awaken for your hope is here. Your glory is here. Your light is here. (laughs) Oh, we made Jesus so safe and so kind and so gentle and so soft and so anemic that he no longer has power to save, heal, deliver. This is not the Jesus of Scripture. Hidden in the genealogy of Christ is the story of four women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. I want to tell their story today. Tamar, her story comes from the book of Genesis. She's mentioned in verse 3 of Matthew 1 of being in the genealogy of Christ. She was a widow. Not just a widow, but a widow twice over. Both of her husbands had died. Not just a widow, but she was barren. And in that culture, to be both a widow and to be barren meant to be cursed by God. And one day when she was finally able to get pregnant, her community accuses her of infidelity and they try to kill her because they think she's a harlot. By all accounts, Tamar has had a difficult life. 
is she finds herself widowed, barren, then pregnant, but alone, forgotten, and now fearing for her very life. But her story is not without a redemptive end. Because out of all of the people who could have found themselves in the genealogy of Christ, a woman who felt forgotten was remembered by God. And I want you to hear something this morning, friend. All of your feelings are real. But not all of your feelings are true. And sometimes in an effort to affirm people, we in an accidental way overvalue a temporary emotion and undervalue an eternal truth. And I'm okay with feeling all sorts of ways because God made us to feel. He's a feeling God with emotions and we are a feeling people with dynamic emotions as well. And it's my hope that in a service we take you to the heights of heights of encouragement and exaltation of Christ. We also take you through the valley of self-reflection and, and who am I that God would put his love and his calling and his anointing upon my life. And, and then end with a shout because God has triumphed and so have we. And, and so even in a service as a conductor I want to take people through the highs and lows of their emotional context. I believe that's the way that God has made us. But I think in our culture specifically today we have overvalued the temporary and undervalued the eternal. I feel forgotten, therefore I am forgotten. No, you feel forgotten, but friend, that's not true. I don't feel forgiven, but friend, you are forgiven. Well, I don't feel healed or restored or called or qualified or anointed, but if you read scripture, you are all of those things and more. And so just because I don't feel it doesn't mean that it's not true. And if we disciple people to only be primarily led by their feelings, my fear is that will create a lot of people intoxicated by spiritual emotionalism, but dead on the inside. And I love the excitement of Sunday. Sundays literally is my favorite day in the week. Not a whole lot else going on these days. But I'll tell you what, when I leave this place, I've got to be convinced in the deepest part of who I am that neither death nor life will separate me from love. Neither angels or demons, heights or depths, riches or poverty. They can't separate me from what I know to be true about who God is and what he says about my life. Friend, I may feel it, but it doesn't make it true. And I love when what I feel lines up with what is actually true. The longer I live, the more that I recognize the need for a spiritual discipline that helps me differentiate between those two realities. Here's the message of Christmas. God is in the business of redeeming your name. And when you get born again, he, he places you within his family line, and in doing so, he attaches you to his inheritance. See, you and I this morning, we have royal blood flowing through our veins because when we got born again, we got adopted into a king's family. And here's what I love about Jesus. No matter how dark your past is, when you get placed into God's family, it corrects the narrative of your life. Which means this, I might have come from shame, but I'm headed to glory. I might have come from deceit, but I'm headed to truth. I might have came from rejection, but I'm headed to acceptance. The only thing that people thought of Tamar when they heard her name was the mistake she had made. But look at what God has done. And I tell you, friend, abuse is a moment. Abused is an identity. Offense is a moment. Offended is an identity. And sometimes we allow the moments that we came from to paint the picture.
picture of what our tomorrow will hold. And can I tell you, friend, one of the joys of Christian living and one of the benefits of being a Christ follower is that even if my today was terrible, there is new mercy for me in the next morning. So I can wake up, put on a new coat, be dressed in heavenly clothes, put on the armor of God, and have a fresh start in a new life. <laughs> There's no other system in the world today that gives you that type of grace. There's no other system in the world today that gives you that type of mercy. We live in a world today where people will research every social media post you've made in the last 15 years just to find something that they can cancel you over. But the Jesus we serve, when you wake up, puts new mercy on your life. And that's a good gospel. It's not the gospel of culture. It's not the gospel of false religion. It's the gospel of Jesus. And it's the best message that there's ever been. Tamar was forgotten by man, but she was remembered by God. It's not just Tamar, it was Rahab. Some of you might be familiar with Rahab's story, uh, others of you aren't. It comes from Joshua 2, and she appears in verse 5 of Matthew 1 of the genealogy of Christ. And Rahab was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. And when Joshua sent two spies to spy out the city, when the king of Jericho found out, he went looking for them. And Rahab, in an act of faith, hid two righteous men from the nation of Israel in her house. The king of Jericho came by. She said, I didn't see them. I think they might have ran off another way. You got to go looking for them somewhere else. But wherever they are, they aren't here. Now, this isn't a proof text on why you should lie. <laughs> but what it is, is an analogy of what happens when you hide righteousness in your heart. Because when Jericho was destroyed, there was one woman and one family that was saved. And they were saved. Why? Because when they were in the valley of decision, they said that the consequence of rejecting righteousness is greater than the consequence of hiding righteousness. And we're going to allow righteous men to take up residence in this house. Can I just speak to some men this morning, some fathers this morning, some young men, some old men this morning? It is imperative in this season that you find the spiritual courage to be the righteous leader in your family. It doesn't mean somehow men are number one and women are number two. It doesn't somehow mean the spirit of God or the anointing of God is greater on males than it is on females. That's counterintuitive to the message of Christ. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, men servants, maid servants, men, women, young, old, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, black, white. That's the ethic of the New Testament. However, there is a special responsibility on men in our world today to be righteous leaders in their family systems. And I think sometimes we have abdicated the righteous responsibility to other things and then wondered why our families are in chaos. And we need men to find the courage to be righteous leaders. No, I'm a high righteousness. No, I'm a high righteousness in my house. No, I'm a, my family system's going to revolve around this idea of righteousness. No, my kids aren't going to see me complain about going to church. You don't have to. You get to. No, my kids aren't going to be raised in an atmosphere in which I'm stingy with the Lord. No, I'm going to be generous. One of the most powerful things, man, that you can do for your family is to allow your wife and kids to see you being a worshiper of Jesus. It does something in the generations. You don't have to worship like me. You can worship just how God has made you. But I'm telling you, there is a call, an opportunity, and I would even say a mandate on men in this area and in this age to regain righteous authority in their families. Now watch what happens. The whole city is about to collapse. Everyone in Jericho would be killed. 
but a small and seemingly insignificant act of faith would place a sinful woman in a Savior's story. See, when you invite Jesus into the room of your heart, it doesn't matter how bad you've been. Salvation will come to your family. Can I tell you, friend, the most dangerous sin is the one in your own backyard. It's also the hardest to see. But if you will be ruthless with your own sin, you won't have a whole lot of time to be worried about others. God hasn't asked me to be the judge. God hasn't asked me to be the jury. God hasn't asked me to be the executioner. You know what God's asked me to be? A witness. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Which means for me, my job is to be a witness of what God is up to, what his heart is for this region, and his love for people around me. And I'm going to leave it up to the Holy Spirit to do what he does best, which is convict the world of their sin. It doesn't mean that we don't preach righteousness or don't preach holiness, but I think sometimes people have become so consumed and attached to the sin that's in their neighbor's yard that they forget about their own backyard. Be ruthless with your own sin. Be ruthless with your own backyard. And allow God to work on the people around you, and I promise you, He will. Sin will bring destruction, but if you'll hide the righteous one in your heart, on the day of judgment, you will be saved. See, long after the walls of Jericho had fallen, the story of Rahab would live on. A sinful woman who met a righteous God, who enveloped her in his unfolding story of redemption. It's no longer Rahab the harlot, it's Rahab the redeemed. It's not just Tamar, it's not just Rahab, but it's Ruth. And Ruth appears in verse 5, chapter 1 of the book of Matthew. And Ruth had a similar story. You'll start to see the pattern of the types of people that God chooses. He always exalts the lowly. He always picks up the broken and the contrite. He always exalts those who have humbled themselves under their mighty hand. God is always in the business of elevating those who are in the dirt. Now, Ruth, she had a similar story. Her husband had died. She was barren. Not only was she barren, she was a Moabite. And in that day and in that age, Moabites were considered the sworn enemy of God's people. There was a great famine in the land, so much so that Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, announced, I am going back to my ancestral home. And Ruth replied with a statement that would impact her destiny in ways that she couldn't imagine. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. For where you go, I will go. And for where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. So Ruth went with Naomi, back to Naomi's ancestral home. And you know where Naomi's ancestral home was? A little city called Bethlehem. And Naomi and Ruth walked back to where they had come from. And Ruth, who was alone, who was barren, who was broke, and who was out of options, met a man named Boaz, who functioned as a picture of Christ, a kinsman redeemer, who not only took her under his wing, but they were married. 
And in doing so, Ruth gave birth to Obed, who gave birth, who, 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 who got married, and out of his offspring came Jesse. And Jesse got married, and out of his offspring came David, meaning Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. And Jesus now sits on David's throne eternally. Through one faithful, seemingly insignificant decision, Ruth finds herself interjected in the greatest story that has ever been told. I think sometimes for us, church feels really spiritual. But the more I come to church, the less spiritual church feels. And what I've recognized is that even in moments that don't feel spiritual, God is doing spiritual things. And so you might be here this morning and feel it. Man, I feel it. God is really working. You might be here this morning and go, oh, this is kind of cool, but it's a, it's a little different, and I'm not sure I'm feeling it at all. But I can promise you, in any atmosphere in which Jesus is exalted in the way he is here, he is working on things in your life that you don't even know are broken. And one day you'll get to heaven, and you will see the unfolded record of how many times God intervened, and you didn't even know it. And this Ruth, she's just broke, barren, and lonely. And so God supernaturally redirects her story and in meeting Boaz finds herself going from an enemy of God to being in the lineage of God do you know what you were before Christ an enemy of God but through the precious blood of Jesus enemies There is no other system on earth that offers that type of redemption. There is no other system on earth that offers that type of forgiveness. The gospel is so powerful that it takes enemies and turns them into friends. And only a God as good as Jesus could put a Moabite woman in the genealogy of a Jewish Savior. It wasn't just Tamar. It wasn't just Rahab. It wasn't just Ruth. But it was Bathsheba. She appears in verse 6 of Matthew 1. Some of you here this morning are familiar with this story. She's connected to David's great sin, taking the wife of another man, killing her husband, bringing judgment upon the entire nation. See, Bathsheba was exploited, stolen, abused, ripped away from her family. And I assume that the people of that day thought to themselves, there is no possible way that God could redeem this story. And yet here we are again. Don't you see the pattern? Barren, bewildered, depressed, deserted. God used it all, and what he produced from that lineage was the perfect prince of peace. Friend, if you get one thing this morning, get this. You don't get Jesus without Tamar. You don't get Jesus without Rahab. You don't get Jesus without Bathsheba. And you don't get Jesus without Ruth. And the reason why some of us miss out on the joy of Christian living is because we have failed to realize that we don't get miracles without sickness. We don't get revival without repentance. We don't get peace without storms. And we don't get resurrection without death. Jesus hasn't come to eliminate my pain, but to give purpose to it. This is the Jesus we worship. And that's why the broken parts of your story carry so much value. Because it's every broken piece that led you straight to him. It's every terrible part of your story that you wish you could forget. That embarrasses you, that you think disqualifies you. And instead, it has presented you to a loving Jesus who transforms your life and places you in his family. 
This is the goodness of God. It's the message of Christmas. No matter how far I've run or how bad I've been, God picks me up and places me in his family and seats me at his table. That's the goodness of God. And this is the pattern of Matthew 1. Now, you might be reading this today and go, well, why is it a big deal that four women appear in the lineage of Christ? Because the time and the culture in which this book was written, that would be about the craziest thing that you could ever read. In that culture, women were considered like property. A lot of them illiterate, untrained, uneducated, passed over, left in the margins of society. What I've learned about God is that when his eyes go to and fro throughout the earth, oftentimes the people that he finds are the people who've been left behind in the margins of other people's stories. That Jesus goes after the lowly. He goes after the rejected. He goes after the forgotten. He goes after the overlooked. He goes after the orphan, the immigrant, the woman, the Gentile, the Moabite. These are the people he goes after. Do you know today that what unifies us is not our victories, it's our failures. It's all of the weaknesses that we share in common. That in doing so, we have reflected on the great strength and brilliance of Jesus. Because in my weakness, his strength is made manifest. And all of us here in this room today, we have different victories, but we have common flaws. And it gives us great hope to recognize that the commonality of our flaws has led us to the uniqueness of Christ's message. Here's what Christ announces. I am remembered. I am forgiven. I am redeemed. And I am not alone. And only a story as good as this one could place Tamar and Rahab right next to Mary and Joseph. I hope when you read scripture, you don't identify with the heroes. You identify with the broken. I think so often when we read the biblical narrative, we think of ourselves like the giants of faith. We think of ourselves like Jesus walking on the water, not Peter flailing under the waves. We think of ourselves as the disciples who stuck close with Jesus, not the Judas who betrayed him. We think of ourselves as the Moses, the great deliverer, not the Pharaoh, the great enslaver. But when I read Matthew 1, I think the thing that I'm impressed by most is that if God used a person like Tamar or Rahab, then there's hope for people like you and me. And not just using them in some sort of performative way. Like God is playing divine chess and just moving us as pawns on his great chessboard. No, God partners with them in such a way that they become part of his very lineage. Friends, salvation is not just something that God does for us. It is something that he does with us. I've been placed in God's story. So have you. In closing today, I, I want you to see these four chairs on stage. and I wanted to illustrate to you the, the four women that I have shared on this morning out of Matthew 1. 
And in closing, I, I want to make this appeal and this plea to you. And you, you might be here this morning and feel alone, forgotten, abused, exploited, scared, fearful, or any sort of particular characteristics. But when I place Jesus at the center of my family's narrative, what he does is he pulls all of my inadequacies together and he uses them for my good. Here's the problem. We have adopted a Jesus who doesn't stand in the center, but instead exists on the peripheral. But here's the problem. If the Jesus you serve only exists on the outside of your family dynamic, then the only thing that you have to stare at is the brokenness of your last mistake. But when Jesus stands in the middle, when my sin and my shame and my guilt seems to rise to the surface, I look at him and I see redemption, hope, and forgiveness. But it's when Jesus is in the center. And where do you find Jesus? All over scripture. You find him in the middle of Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. You find him in the middle of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. You find him hanging between two thieves in the middle on a cross. Everywhere you see Jesus in scripture, he is standing in the center of chaos proclaiming peace. He's standing in the center of sickness declaring healing. And when I place Jesus at the center of my story, even my fears and my failings are redeemed in his hopeful narrative. This is the Jesus we serve. This is the message of Christmas. This is why the genealogy of Matthew 1 can't be skipped over this year. Because it tells us the story of us. I was broken. I was forgotten. I was sinful. Until Jesus stood in the middle. Now I'm a part of his family line and everything has changed. Come on, friend, would you stand as we close this morning? I want to pray for you. I want to encourage you today. Maybe you're here and you'd say, Pastor, if I were to be honest, Jesus isn't at the center of my life. He's not at the center. I know he needs to be, but he ain't. Maybe you'd be here today and you'd say, Pastor, man, there was a time where I really felt like I was living with passion and intentionality and integrity, but if I were to be honest, I've been lost in my own narrative while missing out on his. And friend, I want to pray for you. <laughs> I want to add my faith to yours. And I want to believe for a better tomorrow, for fresh mercy, for fresh grace, that God would empower you by his spirit, that you would never be the same. Come on, would you close your eyes and bow your head with me as we close this morning?